You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Augustine. How are you? Hey, Bob. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast, rate and review us, and so on. Um, you are Augustine Fuentes, a professor of anthropology at Princeton. Yep. Uh, and let me uh, tell people how, how we came to uh, be having this conversation. It started... Uh, with you, uh, starting something of a controversy, I guess you could say. You published, uh, you 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 seem to be judging by your facial reaction, you're taking issue with that characterization. Or maybe, maybe, uh, well, we'll, we'll get into, we'll get into <laughs> to exactly what happened. But the, um, uh, so you published, uh, in, in the journal Science, probably the most esteemed, uh, scientific journal in the United, that's published in the United States. Uh, what's called an editorial. So it's different from a scientific paper. It's short. It's kind of op-ed length. Uh, it was about, uh, Charles Darwin and, and focused in particular on his book, The Descent of Man. <laughs> um, and, uh, here are a few quotes from your piece. Uh, you said the descent quote offers a racist and sexist view of humanity. Uh, it is quote often problematic, prejudiced and injurious. Um, and you said that Darwin, uh, he, you know, although he was a great scientist, he should, quote, should also be taught, uh, as an English man with injurious and unfounded prejudices that warped his view of data and experience. Now, this, uh, kicked up something of a fuss on Twitter. This is a, this is the controversy I was alluding to. Um, uh, Andrew Sullivan tweeted, you knew the woke, that's you, Augustine, by the way, in case you're not clear on that, you knew the woke would come for Darwin sooner or later. Uh, Claire Lehman, uh, the founder of Quillette, chimed in about Darwin. He may have been the father of evolutionary theory, but did he put his pronouns in his bio? Apparently, uh, caricaturing your view of Darwin. Now, uh, I, uh, I, I didn't do any of these things. I did find one, uh, line in your, in your piece that I took issue with, and I wrote about it in my, yeah. uh, newsletter, the non-zero Newsletter, and so we'll certainly um, talk about uh, that among other things. Uh, it it is. Uh, um, I'll, I'll give people a sentence. Here's the yeah. sentence you write about Darwin. He went beyond simple racial rankings, offering justification of empire and colonialism and genocide through survival of the the fittest. Th- that I uh, I took issue with for reasons we'll get into, and then. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that and other things. Before we get into that, uh, first I wanted to um, provide a little more background uh, about you. You've written several books, uh, Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way Being, uh, Biological Anthropology, which is a textbook, uh, and The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans uh, Exceptional, some other books as well. Uh I want to ask a little about the biological anthropology textbook. Uh, and in the process, uh, have you tell us a little more about what you do? Because I think uh, traditionally their anthropology is divided into kind of two kinds. There's cultural anthropology. And I think that's what people these days, especially mostly think of when they think of anthropology. And then there are, there are biological or physical anthropologists, um, who I think, you know, like a hundred years ago were maybe a, a, a larger part of the 
anthropology landscape. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But in any event, yeah. um, what what does it mean to be a biological anthropologist as opposed to a cultural anthropologist? Well, let me thanks, Bob, for that intro. Let me first at least just clarify a little bit about the editorial. Right. Because uh-huh. um, it was. Uh, the 150th anniversary of the scent of man, this is this year, right? Okay. And so there's been a number of events and all these different kinds of things. And so science ran a very long, multi-thousand word, really great piece on the scent of man, uh, in the same issue that my editorial appears in. And they had contacted me 10 days before the deadline for that issue and said, would you write an editorial on dissent, uh, to sort of, uh, because of the 150 years? And I said, sure, I'll write one. Here's what I'm going to write. They said, great. Um, it was actually reviewed by seven of the editors at Science and an external reviewer who gave me feedback, and so I monitored it from that. And let me just, something you didn't read uh, from the thing here is um, that uh, Darwin explored evolutionary histories, anatomy, mental abilities, cultural capacity, race, and sex. Some conclusions uh, were innovative and insightful, right? His recognition that differences between humans and other animals were of degree not kind was trailblazing. His focus on cooperation, social learning, and cumulative culture remains core to human evolutionary studies. The, the reason I do that is to point out that I say, look, this is a really important book. It's absolutely necessary. It is probably the most foundational text in sort of understanding human evolutionary studies. That's why I go on to talk about the other stuff, because we need to think about that. I just want to get that on the okay. table, because all these people are yelling about woke and cancel, and that's all absurd. The point is, is that this is not about taking away reading. It's about more reading, more talking, and more thinking with Darwin, who is one of my heroes and one of all of our heroes as far as scientists. You're, you're not trying to cancel Darwin. No, that's absurd. Um, and so, and as the Andrew Sullivan and Claire Lehman quote, they were, they were just mouthing off for PR. Um, this is about really thinking about stuff. So we'll get into that in more detail, but let's, let's talk about anthropology, right? There's this mischaracterization that anthropology are a bunch of sort of leftists screaming, waving their hands. It turns out that anthropologists in a large part are scientists who are really interested in how humans work, right? What is it about the human? I happen to be a biological anthropologist, which means that I'm interested in everything about the human, but particularly the biological facets, right? I'm really interested in how our social behavior, our culture, our histories interlace with our neurobiologies, our genomes, our physiologies, that kind of stuff. So that's my focus. And biological anthropology is quite large. In, in fact, globally, it's one of the major engagements of anthropology. Um, so, and then there's, you know, anthropological archaeology, anthropological linguistics, and social cultural anthropology. So anthropology is actually a very diverse, interdisciplinary approach. Um, but the stuff I do, biological anthropology, and for example, the textbook um, that you uh, noted that I've written three editions of, it's all about human evolution. It's got a whole big section on Darwin and Lamarck and Wallace and Buffon and the whole history of evolutionary thought. Um, and it really centers on how do we understand what it means to be human by thinking in an evolutionary context about bones, about bodies, about behavior and about biology. OK, um, one more question uh, before we uh, get into the the question I wrote about. Uh, and, and then after that, I hope kind of broaden the conversation. Yeah. Um, did you anticipate uh, creating a firestorm. And, you know, honestly, I don't know how big a firestorm it was. I'm sure to you it seemed huge. You know, your, your Twitter feed is suddenly deluged. On the other hand, I'm sure there are people listening to this who are totally unaware, uh, uh that this happened. Yeah. I mean, that's the way social media are. They're very segmented. It kind of depends on who you follow. Uh, but, but 
I mean, A, what did it, what did it feel like? And B, had you anticipated it kind of it feeling like that, so to speak? Yeah, I think, you know, that's really interesting. And, and that's why I loved our sort of back and forth and this opportunity to chat about it here. So I guess naively, um, my assertion was, it's Descent of Man. There's all this great fanfare about it. I've written about it. We've done lots of talks. It's a really important context. There's some issues with that, so we should read about it. And so what I wanted to point out is that there's this great stuff in this book. But, you know, Darwin had racist and sexist beliefs, right? Uh, and they're evident in this book much more so than in uh, Origin of Species, which he avoids all of this and, and really focuses on different parts of the science. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to say this. This is actually an important way to think with it, because in the contemporary teaching about evolutionary biology, we're really trying to expand and diversify the discipline and make evolution more central in K-12 education and make it sort of a baseline for every student. So I thought this was an important thing to sort of say out there. And I didn't think it was that controversial, but I was wrong. I mean, some people have lost their minds over this. Um, and what I find interesting is that like you have a specific argument you're like hey you said this let's talk about this let's focus in on this what most people are doing is screaming woke and cancel culture and oh my god and i'm pretty convinced they didn't even read the 720 word editorial by the way my condolences that you've uh come to the attention of jerry coin oh, uh, man <laughs> so he has this why evolution is true blog and uh, I see that you two are still at it. I checked into Twitter and you guys are so – I got to say, I mean, I should profess my own bias. He reviewed a book of mine called The Evolution of God for the New Republic. Uh, I just thought he got stuff yeah. so egregiously wrong that, in fact, The New Republic allowed me to not just write a letter but an actual piece in the physical magazine replying – and I got to say, I, I don't I don't understand how he processes information. Um, but yeah. anyway, good luck with that. <laughs> but wait, I, you know, what's really interesting is that book you wrote, which is a fascinating book, right? What it does is it makes it a little bit more complicated to sort of think with this idea of God and science and religion and the sort of relationships and how do we work through these kinds of things. Um, and I think nuance and complexity rubs people the wrong way sometimes. The world is not black and white. Uh, we agree on that. Uh, the, um, okay. So, uh, one, one more, one more thing before we get into our specific issue. Uh, uh, you know, you, you're certainly, uh, right that, uh, if you go back and read Darwin, the descent of man or some of his correspondence, um, and you, and you've, you've just thought of Darwin as this great person, period, you will be shocked by the language, references to lower races and so on. Um, at the same time, that's pretty typical of people in that era. Would you agree? Who, who, who wrote about these things? Oh, absolutely. And I say explicitly in the editorial, like all of the sort of science books of his time, he has some pretty racist and sexist context. Right. But, but actually, and I've written on this in other places, I, I'm not going to let it sit just at that level because Darwin in Descent of Man, right? And some of his other work, but in Descent of Man, he actually does this incredible job where he clearly shows that the polygenesis, the people that think that different groups of humans or different species are wrong, that we're all one species. He lays that out. And then he goes through and talks about skin color, hair type, sort of eyes and facial form, and shows that these classification systems that we're using to divide people up don't look like they're functional. Or they don't look like they have the kind of, I mean, functional in the sense of why people are different. And he really goes on about how selection doesn't seem to be explaining these kinds of things. Natural selection. He gets into sexual selection later. Right. 
But what's amazing is he he lays out a pretty convincing argument, right, against race. Right. And then says, but the race is real. They're ranked hierarchically. And Africans and indigenous Australians and Americans are mentally deficient relative to Europeans. And it's that point. I'm like, really, man? He was a genius. So Darwin isn't just anyone from his time. He, by eight, by the 1850s, he had looked around at the world in front of him. He looked at the data and he bucked his society, his church, his colleagues, the scientific peers. And he said, you guys are all wrong. The world isn't the way you think it is. It's this way. Here are the data. Here's what's going on. And yet, when it came in descent to talking about humans and especially about men and women, he, he couldn't. He couldn't make that leap. He couldn't follow the data in the same way. And I think that's a lesson, right? I'm not saying Darwin was a bad human being. He was a kind, compassionate man who cared a lot for other humans. But he was also this product of this intensive systemic systems of beliefs and biases that blinded him to the very data in front of him. So Darwin's lead, what we learned from Darwin is follow the data, right? And in this case, he didn't do it. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of, uh, I, I mean, I, I gather you've written against the concept of race, uh, as a useful, as a very useful analytical concept, partly on grounds For that it's biological, the, biological, biological. Race. Okay. Well, well, maybe you should, uh, elaborate on that a little because it did yeah. seem to me in reviewing chapter seven, which is what you steered me to right. when on Twitter I questioned this one sentence in your piece, um, in, in in ways, even in addition in addition to what you've said, he he. It seems to me he's kind of on the same wavelength as you in a certain sense. Right. As I would guess. In fact, let me just grab my uh my. I see my copy of Descent right over there. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you two things from it. Um, sure. Uh, is this first edition or second edition? Um, so uh, is this first edition or second edition? This is first edition. I did okay, look. At, yeah. I did look at the second edition. It's uh, it's the, pretty different. It's he's added a bunch of stuff in that. Yeah. One. Well, I looked at the the uh, the stuff that's more relevant to our disagreement. Right. I looked at the second edition uh, because you had seared me to that. But this is not about that. This is just about race. He, he writes. Right. It may be doubted whether any character can be named which is distinctive of a race and is constant. Now, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing you would say. Uh, And then there's another thing, which I'm not sure I'm interpreting this right, but he says, uh, uh, the most weighty of all arguments against treating the races of man as distinct species, that's the view he was arguing against, is that they graduate into each other uh, independently in many cases, as far as we can judge of their having intercrossed. In other words... There just aren't, I, I take him to be saying there aren't clear, there aren't clear lines, uh, right. between, uh, the races. He, he goes even further than that. Um, when he talks about the skin color distribution and these patterns, he makes the case that actually these things that we're using to divide people up, they don't necessarily reflect biological patterns in the way of division. They reflect morphological differences, but not biological patterns of division. And yet, at the same time, he will go on to say something like, um, even the most distinct races of man are much more like each other in form than would first be supposed. Certain Negro tribes must be accepted. And throughout the entire descent, he keeps saying, look, wow, we're almost all the same, except for this indigenous group, except for peoples of Africa, except. And so he has this scale. And as we'll get into the discussion, he also believed 
very deeply. Um, and, you know, in the second edition, it's more clear, and in a lot of his personal letters it is, that there was a natural process by which whites, Europeans, would replace all other races. I mean, so those beliefs don't jive with the data. Yeah, now, now we're getting closer to what uh, you and I are going to um, are going to talk about. The uh, la- last thing on on race, I sometimes... I, I, I am far from an expert on this, and it's been a long time since I've really uh, looked all, all very extensively at Darwin's writing, except for the, the refreshing I did for purposes <laughs> of writing this piece. Um, but, you know, like when he says lower races, it seems to me sometimes he seems to be conflating. It seems to be unclear. Is he talking about biological heredity or is he talking about a cultural component? Because... Right. Because it certainly was his view that uh, you could, uh, quote, civilize uh, yeah. the un- the uncivilized uh, races. And we should add that in, in those days, anthropologists, you know, there was civilized, right. barbarian, right. savage. These were actually technical terms. Yeah. Civilized, well, I civilized. I don't know if they were technical terms, but well, they no, were I mean, terms you can that were find, used. Yeah. You can go to uh, yeah. either Henry Morgan Lewis or Edward right. Tyler and right. I think find them defined like a talus. Yeah. These are the grades. They're great. They're saying hunter gatherers are savages. Right. If they have farming, they're barbarians. If they have writing, they're simple. I mean, I mean, honestly, <laughs> seriously, go, go read. You know, no, no, uh, I know. Henry Lewis Morgan, yeah. uh, uh, Tyler. Um, and now that's not to say they didn't come to have the con- judgmental connotations. I'm right. not saying that, right. but it's, it's like, the use of the terms was un- unavoidable if you were right. going to talk about this stuff is what I mean. Um, so, but, but, you know, it, it, it seems to me like sometimes he's saying they are lower, but that's not necessarily permanent, right? It's, it, well, it's, yeah. go ahead. So here's, here's actually the really important thing. And again, this is one of the, like the best things and worst things about descent. One of the best things is that Darwin Preciously, I mean, he knew he saw stuff really well in most cases. He's like, look, you know what's really important in understanding human evolution and human trajectory? Culture, right? Culture actually not as that's not just a, something humans wear. It's actually part and process of the human evolutionary structure. So he, you know, he also understood the real sort of complexities of Lamarck's arguments. People oversimplify Lamarck all the time, and there's some interesting things going on there, but. Let's leave that aside. Darwin believed that cumulative culture, that the ability to take on cultural complexity and to use that to deal with the challenges of the world was central in understanding human evolution. Um, and so, yes, he would argue that there are, some of these are cultural differences, but he believed these were evolved capacities. He specifically and unfortunately identifies cognitive capacities. Um, and not as much in dissent, but in his personal letters, you find all these cases where he clearly has this horrible disdain for the other races, which is so it doesn't fit with like his care for humanity. I mean, this is a guy who writes so compassionately about the world and about other organisms and about people who he's had interactions with. And then he'll say something like, um, I can't believe when I first saw the naked Fuegians standing on the shores in South America, that that could have been my ancestor. How how revolting. I'm much more comforted to have like a furry, you know, primate as my ancestor than that human. That 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 is but like, then, why would then, you say that? Although he also reports that then he got to know some of them. Right, right. And, 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 and he was and it turned out right. they were they were much more like him than he had realized. 
Exactly. And then after that experience, he goes back to describing them as these lesser things. So I think, I mean, this is just my own personal opinion. I think Darwin was really struggling, right? Was trying to figure out how come the data are this one way? And his world was, I mean, this guy wrote three volumes on fossil um, uh, uh, barnacles, right? Mm -hmm. Classified every barnacle in existence, just all this incredible work. His detail for data was beyond almost anything any of us could ever hope for. So he, he saw stuff, and I think it, it challenged him, but this is sort of my whole point. The power of a life, of a culture of racism and sexism, like, just didn't, didn't allow him. He couldn't get past that. And it's so unfortunate, but that's something to learn from, right? Because the methods, the goals of dissent, the goals Darwin lays out for us are exactly what scientists should be doing. But the cautionary tale is that who we are as human beings, what we bring through our life experience to the science is also really important. Okay, so we should get to this uh, this sentence that I uh, focused on, um, the uh, where you say uh, he went beyond simple rankings, offering, and this is uh, uh, the key part, offering justification of empire and colonialism and genocide through... Survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you say, uh, this too is confounding given Darwin's robust stance against slavery. He was very, uh, that, that was something that had been in his family for a long time. They were very, the Darwins uh, were very early well, on the, the anti-slavery bandwagon. The Wedgwoods, right? Emma, his Bo wife, both came sides from a very strong family. family. Yeah. But, but he, what's really interesting too is, and this is back to that, sorry to interrupt, but this is just so fascinating. He was so influenced by his wife and daughters, right? By the women in his family shaped mm -hmm. so much of Darwin's perspectives, especially on this anti-slavery in these kinds of contexts. And yet he still has all this like really derogatory stuff about women in his things. It's just to me, it's it's so important to understand how complex these things are. OK. Uh, yeah, I think also on the you know, she was uh, remained a devout Christian, I think. And that mm -hmm. also was a psychological complication for him. Yeah. Um, the uh, justification. So, yeah. So justification offer offering justification of empire, colonialism and genocide. And I said, I don't recall him. In, in dissent, uh, trying to justify empire and colonialism and genocide. I, and I went back and at your suggestion, looked at chapter seven, uh, and right. there's a long, uh, you know, thing about, uh, what happens when, uh, different groups of humans, uh, collide and some, uh, get, uh, uh vanquish others or, or some are even wiped out by others. Uh, I'll read, l let me read a little, uh, section of that just to give, um, people the, uh, the flavor of it. If I can, uh, find this thing I want to read. Um, I mean, he goes, uh, well, can I find the thing I read? Uh, uh, I can, I'm sure I can find it in the book, but that might take, uh, too long. He goes on, he basically goes on and on and says, um, you know, well, here's, here are the things that, uh, hold a population in check. Um, the, uh, oh, oh, I know where I can find this. I think it is important to give people a little bit of the, the, the flavor of the actual reading. Oh, yeah, I'll I read. Mean, so, so I this have that is, passage if you don't have, you have it. So okay, this is, good. this is Darwin, and I think this is fairly typical. He's, he's, he's saying extinction follows chiefly from competition of tribe with tribe and race with race. 
uh, various checks are always in action, serving to keep the numbers down, blah, blah, blah. If any of these checks increases in power, even slightly, the tribe thus affected tends to decrease. And when of two adjoining tribes, one becomes less numerous and less powerful than the other, the contest is soon settled by war, slaughter, cannibalism, slavery, and absorption, even when a weaker tribe is not thus abruptly swept away. If it once begins to decrease, it generally goes on decreasing until it becomes extinct when civilized nations come into contact with barbarians. The struggle is short, except where a deadly climate gives its aid to the native race. Of the causes which lead to the victory of civilized nations, some are plain and simple. He goes on and on. You know, we can see yeah. the cultivation of land will be fatal to, in many ways to savages, for they cannot or will not change their habits, new diseases and vices, blah, blah, blah. The grade of their civilization uh, seems to be a most important element in the success of competing nations. So here he's talking about uh, when, quote, civilized nations collide. So that's the spirit of it. And I don't know, did you think that that, that character captured yeah. what you're talking about that that does but let me just read from the second edition that same section because it's about four times as long in the second I edition is, where he, i think this is from the second yeah, edition that but, could be okay. but i'm just saying there's another okay. bit there okay. um, just to add on because you're right no that i think captures it very well which we can talk about but here's from page 116 in the second edition at some future period not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. Then the break between man and his nearest allies will be wider, for it will then intervene between the more civilized Caucasians, right, and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as it is now between the Negro and Australian and the gorilla. Right. So... Here is he out, he's outlining his argument, um, via natural selection, right? That certain groups of humans are logically going to outcomplete, outcompete and replace other groups of humans. And he ties that to a racial hierarchy of ranking. Right. So that's, it's very clear what he believed. And I think what you read was really important because if, if the, our readers, you know, the listeners go back and look at ex the, the section called extinction of races in both the first and especially the second edition, he walks through the example in New Zealand, the example in Tasmania, the example of the Irish and a, a whole bunch of different sort of examples where he's like, look, sort of civilized Western Europeans, Mook um, come in and what happens is the indigenous peoples or the local peoples, they can't compete as well. They get sick. They become infertile. They take to alcohol. They don't do this. Right. So what my argument is, is that Darwin is deploying, as he's had throughout the entire book, the phrase, the frame of natural selection and survival of the fittest to reasonably and justifiably explain the patterns of the world. Well, it's the word justifiably that I have trouble with. I mean, he describes uh, things that he sees as the happening, that right. he sees as the case. He describes right. things that he thinks will happen in the future. Right. What I don't see him saying is, and this is a good thing. Now, uh well, go ahead. He, you see him so, saying that? So, no, no. But this is, I think, really important because I think here's where we're on this semantic thing. So I see justify not as advocacy. 
I don't think he's advocating. In fact, if you read, especially in the uh, some of his letters that he was writing around the time of dissent, in between first and second edition of dissent, you can see he he actually thinks human suffering is awful. He really it really affects him. Right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't like to see so. He doesn't think this is a good thing necessarily, but he thinks this is a natural and logical thing. And so when I'm saying justifying, he is offering what he believes is the right and reasonable explanation for why this is happening in the world. And that's powerful well, because he is the expert. He is the father of evolutionary theory. And so he is offering an explanation for what it is. But if you read through it, you can see he's talking about rape and sort of the loss of economic and political um, independence. He's talking about warfare, all these kinds of things that are not related to natural selection or biological but processes. But they are things that actually happen. He is describing yes. the oh. world. He is describing the world, but he's justifying those outcomes, not as well, social, political, or sort of I, I, that's the where intense. I don't, I, I, uh, I don't see him justifying. I mean, uh, you okay. said he describes it as right and reasonable. Well, I don't see him saying they're morally right. And by the way, oh. I'm not saying he didn't believe right. they're morally right. right. You know, there's right. a letter that uh, came to my attention after yeah. this from the final year of his life. Ten years after this, right. it's worth discussing because it could be interpreted that way. But in any event, if we're if we're if we're talking about dissent, um, what he says in dissent, I just don't see him saying, "And this is a good thing." And 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 the reason now, I don't deny that there are people, and this is really uh, the main thing I'm interested in is is the problematic fact that there are a lot of people who, if you say something is in some sense natural, they will infer that it's therefore good, right? There yeah. are lots of people like that. that so Darwin if, wasn't if that you way. If you, what, what's that? Darwin wasn't that way. He was no, not Darwin saying wasn't that, that, yeah. He was the no. opposite. He yeah. explicitly, far from saying, well, if... If uh, this is if all this pain and suffering is natural, it's part of God's plan and therefore justified. He said, literally, if there's this much pain and suffering in nature, I'm having trouble believing that there's a, that there's a good and omnipotent God. And and, and he was right. so sensitive that the example he used of suffering that 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 would just pushed him over the edge, right? was a parasitic wasp that eats caterpillars right. from the inside out. To Darwin, that was unacceptable suffering. And but, but he doesn't have that same sense of compassion in the pages of dissent when he's talking about human suffering. Well, and that, that's actually interesting. No, no, but that frames because yeah, see, he believes that this is a logical process. Look, here's a letter. This is, so can I say letters. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, but don't do the 10 years le uh, later no, no, letter yet, okay? 10 years before. I have oh, okay. a letter 10 years before. Okay, but first, can I just yeah. say something before I forget it? Is that I think here we're talking about partly about a, a great difference in sensibility and in uh, the conception of proper uh, scientific and academic discourse mm -hmm. between like your academic uh, generation and, and, and Darwin's. I think one thing that drove the anti-woke crazy about your editorial is that uh, uh, you say things like he is an Englishman with injurious Prejudices. You write that his, yeah. his uh, views are often problematic, prejudiced, and injurious. And this drives these people crazy because they, their idea is, look, a scientist, a scientist doesn't have to stop every five minutes and emote and explicitly say, I'm sorry that the world is like this. A scientist's he job does, is to describe. He does if he's wrong. 
What do you mean? So, the, so Darwin's explanation about race differences is wrong. It's unscientific. Well, no, it's well, incorrect. He, he could, you can't so, expect him to know it's wrong. I mean, he thought we it was were right. just saying that he was questioning about that. He lays out this one argument and derives a conclusion about racial hierarchies and cognitive capacities that are not supported by the data he just asserted. So, but in the broader sense, I mean, but, there were many female scientists when Darwin published Descent who spoke up. There are many women's activists who said, "Hey, this is injurious. You're saying this stuff." I I'm sure, you know, Frederick Douglass was writing around the time Darwin was writing this. So I'm just saying that there was a social context in the moment. The Quakers, right? The British Quakers were the fundament of anti-racist and abolitionist activity there. Um, and right around the time that Darwin published Dissent was this explosion in sort of British anti-racist activity. And so I'm just saying the context, it wasn't like everyone was running around being a complete racist idiot. Okay, but let me be clear. You, you, so your complaint about Darwin is that in these sections where he's describing groups extinguishing other groups, he doesn't stop and say, by the way, it causes me no. pain. It, I no. wish it weren't like that. My, my complaint, and this is what, what struck me about the editorial and why I wish I had been given like the really nice homage to Darwin. I wish I had been given 3,000 words to sort of lay this out because here's what it is. I am not complaining about Darwin. I am highlighting that dissent has some real problems in it that were introduced by Darwin as a human being. And so understanding when we read this, taking from dissent sort of the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, allows us a much better understanding, oh, not just oh, of that, Darwin, that's all fine. but of the future. That's all fine. It, 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 the only thing I'm taking issue with is you're saying he offers justification of empire, colonialism, yeah. and genocide. Now, you know, if you had said... He provided justification. I'd be a little closer to accepting okay. that because I know, no, but because I know there, there are always going to be people and certainly were, were, were more of them then who would say, well, if this is natural, geez, you, you're just describing yeah. it as this relentless, inexorable process that it's an, that's an expression of nature. It must be good. I don't yeah. doubt that we know that people used it like that. We yeah. know that no, for a fact. Totally. And, and maybe he should have been, uh, more careful. I will say, by the way, that his good friend and kind of leading publicist Thomas Huxley spent a lot of time making that point explicitly. Yeah, and I have, yeah, and and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and I think we know that Darwin, in principle, agreed that yeah, that yeah. nature, far from being a moral guide, is so manifestly cruel that right. we should reject it as a moral guide. Yeah, but yeah. but um. So I, so, yeah, go ahead. So this is really good. No, no, but this is really good. So, um, I, you know, if, if I could go back and re-edit, I'm totally fine with provides. I think that's really good. Let me just read two things briefly that I think it, it, maybe is where we agree. So, uh, the, um, uh, historian of, um, Darwin, Janet Brown notes at the end of her introduction to a most interesting problem, this, uh, edited volume that I'm part of that came out recently, which is for people interested in sort of thinking with the Darwin, all the great and the problematic of Darwin. It's a really good Princeton University Press, a most interesting problem edited by Jeremy De Silva. She says, uh, Janet Brown says, while Darwin's descent of man can hardly account for all of the racial stereotyping, nationalist fervor and prejudice expressed in years to come, there can be no denying the impact of his work in providing a biological backing for notions of racial superiority, reproductive constraints, gender typologies and class distinctions. So that's what I meant. He provided, I guess is better. I offered and provided, I saw as the same a justification. He provided a template that people are taking to, to miss, to misuse. Now, for his own personal beliefs, it's unfortunate because 
you know, they were messed up in some ways. And here's a, a letter from 1962 or 1862 to Charles Kingsley. And one thing that's amazing about Darwin's, the current Darwin scholarship is everything we're talking about here. Everyone can go online. It's all open access. All of his publications, his letters. It's really amazing. Um, but here's what he wrote. Um, uh, it is very true what you say about the higher races of men when high enough replacing and clearing off the lower races in 500 years, how the Anglo-Saxon race will have spread and exterminated whole nations in consequence, how much of the human race viewed as a unit will have risen in rank. So, that, so that's, that's, just, that's Darwin reply, uh, to replying Kingsley? to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it, it reflects the, the kind of biases that I'm talking about with Darwin that, yeah. that inhibited him as one of the best, I would argue, I mean, Darwin is one of my heroes. His methodology, right, is what we aspire to. Mm-hmm. But the biases inherent in this social and experiential perspective about race and sex blinded him it, it, it's to the funny. data in front of him. I, I thought about uh, Kingsley when uh, uh, that other letter from yeah. 10 years after descent came to my attention to a guy named William Graham because Kingsley was, uh, I don't know if he was an out and out theologian. He was a, he was a cleric. Yeah. And I remember, uh, 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 when Kingsley offers, uh, this, uh, in a letter to Darwin, this, this idea that, um, Kingsley says, uh, you know, in a way, Kingsley is trying to adjust He's trying to develop a more liberal theology that will accommodate evolution. And he says, you know, come to think of it. In a way, it's more amazing that God should have started the process of life and been like smart enough to set it up so that it would lead to human beings. And actually, I got to say, it's a natural selection is an impressive algorithm. The, uh, uh, then to imagine that he created our species de novo. Yeah. Now, we know that Darwin's actual belief was, you know, my take on natural selection is I'm not sure about this God thing, period. I don't think a good God would have set up natural selection. But does he say that in reply? Of course not. You got to remember one thing about Darwin. And in fact, in the first edition of Origin, in that final passage, he writes, you know, yeah. from the days when our yeah. creator breathed life into blah, blah, blah. He later admitted that was a crass concession to Christians. He didn't believe it and he took it out, but he, he did, I believe he took it out eventually of later editions. Yeah. I'm, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Cause but, the Tangled Bank thing. Yeah. I, I mentioned the first few Bank editions thing. at least. But, but, yeah. But the, but in any of it, my point is, you know, he was in a sense traumatized by his own work. And I yeah. think this is why it took him so long to finally publish Origin. He was in this Christian, uh, you know, uh, country. He knew all hell was going to break loose. Um, he was very mindful of, uh, you know, pacifying potential critics. Right. And in his court, his correspondence is an ongoing public relations campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would keep that in mind whenever he says something like, you know, you're right. Uh, uh, someday, uh, you know, the, 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 this process will lead to this thing you consider good. The elevation of the, whatever, the white, whatever he says, right? I, I would just. Yeah, but I he says just, it a lot of times. Of course, because it's a nonstop right. campaign. Right. right. This is a guy who was, he was a head case. I mean, you know, he, he was, he was deeply worried about how things yeah. were going yeah. to be received. And if he could convince people 
that natural selection was consistent with uh, their worldview or consistent with their right. prejudices, even in the bad sense of prejudice, I think he tended to be inclined to do that. That's just no, I, an asterisk I would add. You're absolutely right. And I think the care and the one thing I think people misrepresent sometimes, and you didn't do it here at all, but everyone says that he was so worried about the religious context. Uh, and that's why it took him so long to publish. Uh, another reason it took him so long to publish is he was a really good scientist. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to cross the T's and dot the I's. He was meticulous as hell. And, and that I think, I think people in this contemporary sort of genomics, fast food, uh, fast, uh, high throughput reality, people can't imagine taking three, four, five years to actually write and think with something and look at data and publish. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really important to remember that, you know, lots of good science takes a long time. It's hard stuff. And Darwin reminds us of that. Um, but it, I think, and, and you know this already, later in life, Darwin got a little bit more sort of I mean, angry for a variety of reasons, but, but the race thing, you know, especially when he began to really correspond with his younger cousin, uh, Galton, and he, they really... Who is the, the founder of eugenics, yeah, some, kind yeah, of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and statistics, modern statistics in many ways. Well, so. So, so he's one um, for two. <laughs> so, but, but it's really interesting because my, the bottom line here is Descent is such an important book, but not one just to hold up and say, oh, Descent, amazing Darwin, but to rather say, wow, let's check this out. What's the good? What's incorrect? How do we understand method and theory? And how do we understand what it means to be in a time and place? And that science matters. Science has impact. So someone like Jerry Coyne screaming science is amoral and neutral. That's just not true. People listen to people with power, with insight and knowledge. And so the frame, that's why talking about race and sex is so important to do so carefully and scientifically, because what you say matters. Yeah. Well, let's actually turn to sex briefly. I want to say first, I think that these two points that he was, uh, worried about the reception of the origin and that he was meticulous are not unrelated. I think yeah. he, I, yeah. I think he thought, man, I'm going to have, this book is going to have to be really yeah. solid. I'm going to yeah. have to. And he spent decades corresponding with people throughout the world, scientists gathering the data that would back up uh, his, uh, but, but I will say, you know, once, once uh, it was a competitive uh, situation yeah. And Alfred Russell Wallace uh, had independently come up with the idea. He that's one good way to get a guy like him to get a book finished. And, uh, and so and yeah, when they joint delivered that paper and here's another thing. I mean, this is a total aside, but I think you'll appreciate this. Wallace, you know, everyone leaves Wallace out of this. Wallace yeah. had a lot of influence on Darwin and Wallace is particularly fascinating because Wallace was more of an ecologist, right? Wallace actually did a lot of field work. Darwin didn't do a lot of field work. Um and so Wallace's take on stuff, which got very interesting later in life uh, in weird ways, um but his take on stuff was really rooted in sort of really core ecological complexity. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, no, that's a totally fascinating story. And, uh, I have argued that Darwin was actually pretty sly and masterful in the way, in the way he handled the competitive threat of, of, uh, Wallace while seeming to, to be a perfect gentleman about it. It was, it was, uh, he, he did in the end ensure that he'd be the one we were talking yeah. about and not Wallace. And in a way he deserves it. He came up with the idea yeah. earlier. He documented it very substantially. You can, you can argue it either way, I guess. The, um, okay. So on, uh, I want to find this thing you say about, uh, near the end of your piece. Uh, there is no biological coherence to 
quote, male and, quote, female brains or any simplicity in biological patterns related to gender and sex. Now, I'm sure you know there are people who would take issue with that. I am not uh, a physiologist. I'm not an expert on brain structure or anything, but uh, I think I could raise some questions about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you, what do you, um, so, so here's, this is actually a really important thing. And let me just right off the bat, sort of let everyone who's really interested in this, there's just a meta analysis, the largest one of studies of sort of neurophysiology and brain studies that are focused on sex differences, age differences, structure, things like that. It's uh, Lise Elliott and colleagues. It just came out, I think this year, uh, in the spring. Um, so that's a very important one. Um, so that's where you draw a lot of this stuff. But there's also really good work by Gina Rippin recently and, and a few other folks. So here's what I mean. You cannot hold the brain in your hands and tell whether it's male or female. That's impossible. Right? You, you cannot mean based, based on gross morphology. anatomy or do you so mean we, there's... Yeah, I'm getting yeah. it to it. Based okay. on gross anatomy. You can slice through a brain and look at the amygdala. You can look at the uh, white matter. You can look at the sort of cortical structuring and the weight and a variety of other things. And on... Average, you will not be able to tell whether this brain is male or female. There's size differences, so male brains tend to be slightly larger because males tend to be larger than females within a given population. But there aren't structural differences that are consistent in associated with what we're going to call reproductive sex, male and female, because there's some complexities here. But so there, there isn't this sort of morphological difference. Now, if you take two 30-year-olds, one who identifies as male, one who identifies as female, and put them in an MRI and show them the same kind of stimulus, you're probably going to get some different reactions. Different things are going to light up. Different things are going to happen. Um, and that's because the life experience in you know, our, our neurobiology, our brains are dynamic entities. And as we grow, we train them to respond certain ways. So what's really interesting is that we can see pattern differences between what we would call sort of social, cultural expectations of roles, right, in the brain. But we don't see these emerging as sort of specific sex-based differences. That's not to say that there aren't pattern differences that we could say are male and female. But to say there's a male brain or a female brain that is consistent and is more identifiable than inter-individual variation is not supported by the neurophysiological literature. Okay, so um, to to make sure I understand you, uh, I take it you're not just saying that. Uh, well, maybe maybe it's one thing you're saying that. Of course, there's a lot of variation within uh, population. So, for example. Uh, there are many, uh, women who are taller than many men. Right. But it is fair to say that there is a biological basis and even a genetic basis for the fact that on average, men are taller than women. Would you agree with that? There is a developmental basis for the statement that men are taller than women within a given population. Now, I say this very importantly because it's not always associated with particular gene uh, structures. It isn't uh, tied to necessarily testosterone uh, expansion at puberty. It isn't tied to whether or not you have a Y chromosome or not. There's actually a whole bunch of other developmental things. Y chromosomes are in influential in this, but they're not required. So I would be careful about the genetic, but there's clear developmental processes that say on average in a given population, those classified as male are going to be larger, right, physically and in muscle density uh, than those classified as female. But this is, a, this is at least partly a product of biological... Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm not... 
I'm not sure why you're saying it's not genetic, but maybe we don't have time for maybe that's yeah, that because that's an oversimplified term because you know genes don't do anything by themselves. Well, right, they, and so you know, true. A, ge- a gene yeah. without an environment doesn't express itself yeah, in any yeah, way at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I mean, natural selection in in choosing genes kind of assumes a certain environment. Yeah. Um, the uh, okay, but at the same time. Uh, okay, so you, that that's not all you're saying. You're you're not no. you're not just you're not just saying that uh, uh, you can find a female brain, a given female brain that is uh, biologically indistinguishable from a uh, a male brain. Uh, no, no, no. You know, Wait, re- reverse you, that. You're not saying you that. Can, you can take some brains, and in some cases, you might be able to identify them with a sex, but in right. most cases, you can't. Okay, I, I was under the impression that we know enough about the effect of testosterone on brain development that well, there are well, certain, uh, I don't know if you, if you yeah, could call them structural, so, but you would call them physical consequences in the brain uh, of the disproportionate release of testosterone at, I think, two points in the development of the male, right? So, so there's some physiological, and that's better than structural physiological processes that are related to endocrine function. But remember, males and females both have testosterone. And if you look at the distribution, males on average are substantially higher than females at mo- many points throughout development, right? Primarily post-pubertal, right? Um, uh, well, uh, in the uh, womb uh, initially, right? Uh, in, in parts of early development where you get the sex differentiation uh, reproductive tract-wise. And then later around puberty, you get these differences in testosterone. Other than that, like during childhood, there isn't that much pattern difference. Um, but you have overlap between females and males, right, in testosterone levels. Sure. But testosterone itself is not the determining factor for the vast majority of neurophysiology. In fact, most testosterone no, is no, converted to... No, not for the vast majority, but... but it, yeah, it's, little it, patterns, yeah. Well, and some of them could be significant. Oh, oh no, no, the, the, neuro, the endocrine stuff is significant. But if you were to say, I'm looking at this impact of testosterone on this sort of neural cluster here... Uh, so I'm going to take a hundred brains and I'm going to look for this pattern. That pattern would only help you identify a small percentage of them as male, whereas a whole bunch of males would fall out of that pattern. You wouldn't see it. And some females would fall into that pattern. So it is partly about the distinction between uh, saying the, there's an average di- difference and saying there's a there's a uh, a, a consistent difference in, in right. that, that manifests itself in every comparison of right. an individual. Right. So, so to say there's a male brain and a female brain is incorrect. Sure. To say they are patterned, reproductively related endocrine processes that affect what we could call males and females at neurobiology, of course. So that's the important thing, though, because to say there's a male brain and a female brain is to make an argument that these are two different lineages, they're under different selection pressures, there's these clear things, and that's not true. So if I handed you a kidney and I said, tell me, is this a male or a female kidney? Me. You'd laugh at me. Are you, I'm right. right. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. I mean, well, who who says is that a male or a female kidney? I'd, I'd, you know, be, gross, I'd be grossed care. out. I'd with, be like, with, I'd be right, like yes. running away from you if you handed me a kidney. Um, the, the, but the bottom line is that organs, aside from the reproductive organs, organs are not male or female. They're human. Right, but in the reasons you would expect that you might have some differences in the brain, and and it gets back to yeah. actually the difference in. Average difference in height, you know, sexual dimorphism, which is what that's called, is found in a number of species. And as I recall, although I haven't written about this in a, in a long time, if you look at other species and, and notably other primate species, um, 
you will find that sexual dimorphism is correlated with the, uh, the, uh, how, how different reproductive success is among males in the population. So in, in species where the males are on average at least 25% larger than females, there's a strong correlation between polygyny, right? And right. sort of high ranking males having the most access to reproduction in, in most, but not all species where males are 25% or larger. Smaller than that, and humans are 12 to 15% at best. Right. Lower than that. So humans actually map more to monogamous primates. We're, we're not monogamous primates, but humans map more to that sort of range. So interestingly, if you use a primate-wide comparison, humans fall into multi-male, multi-female, complex, diverse mating patterns and systems relative to the other primates. Um, well, uh, I mean... And we a, don't have any we, canine dimorphism. Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, the, the backdrop for this is, uh, I suspect you're not, uh, don't have especially warm feelings about kind of mainstream evolutionary psychology. Uh, I have written in defense of it, so we probably have different views on, uh, the extent to which male and female psychology may, on average, uh, with the average, uh, male and female heterosexual, uh, have a kind of, uh, a, a, a biologically hereditary basis. Um, but, uh, one thing an evolutionary psychologist might say in response, well, well, first look, let's, let's run through the logic. The logic uh, of the, of the general correlation is that if it's a species, uh, in which, uh, some males are going to shut, be shut out of the reproductive sweepstakes altogether or very nearly, and some, some are dominating multiple uh, females like gorillas, say. Right. Uh, you're going to see fighting among males. And and that through natural selection is going to lead to large, fierce uh, males. If on the other hand, uh, uh, as with gibbons, say uh, th- there isn't much difference in the reproductive success among males, there isn't much sexual dimorphism, presumably because males uh, aren't designed by natural selection to fight each other. Now humans have more sexual dimorphism, I think, than gibbons. The, uh, Not all gibbons, only some. So siamangs, siamangs okay, have okay. have about the same as humans. So that, this is what. So here's my bottom line: these gross generalizations don't right. work. Follow the data. But that, the, so the, humans are really confusing, okay. right? Because we have these mixed data sets relative to other organisms. So that's what makes us more complicated, but very interesting. By the way, has, has anybody studied the uh, degree of reproductive, the variation in reproductive success among males in uh, males in the different gibbons? So, oh, yeah, so it's it's very low, except it turns out, and I published on this back in 2000, and there's been an explosion of it since then, many given species are not actually that monogamous. Actually, extra pair copulations, particularly by female, females leaving the groups to go out and seek other males, is, mm-hmm. is probably accounts for about 15% of all reproduction. So there's a really complex, even in this monogamous, right, let us mm-hmm. say, monomorphic population, we've got this very interesting mating system and dynamic, and we also have multi individual groups more than two adult groups so so there's a lot going on I mean, but, what a, but what a, there, there's a point you made here that i think that's really interesting and that is the argument of like what does reproductive skew look like in humans right now folks like bobby Lowe and others have talked about roman emperors and sort of european kings and but if we look across humans right throughout most of history that we can tell and contemporary patterns 
the actual variance in reproductive success between males is not very high and between females is not very high when you look at it in a broad context and you include what reproductive success actually is. It is not just in an individual replacing their specific uh, uh, context. It is the entire kin. That is all of your genetic relatives' contribution mm -hmm. to future uh, generations. And it turns out with human social systems and social structures, um, we just don't, there just isn't that much variance. Well, my, uh, it seems like the, the, the populations most relevant, if you're talking about evolution, are probably not Roman emperors anyway. Uh, it's prob probably more like hunter-gatherer societies. Or my impression no, everyone, was, everyone is, is relevant. We're all human, right? And well, so right. understanding but, but what mean, it looks like species-wide. But I mean, none of natural selection took place, for example, in an environment where uh, people can communicate, have remote video conversations. It's right? happening right now. Natural selection is happening well, sure, right but, now. But, but, but no significant part of human nature is due to evolution happening uh, well, you tell me. Uh, uh, I mean, evolution is ongoing. If we learned anything, right, over the last 150 years since sort of on the origin of species is the complexity and patterns of, of evolutionary processes. So to say that we are not evolving right now as much as we were evolving 10,000 years ago is absurd. Now. The patterns and processes, what's changing. That's why cultural evolution is so important. That's why understanding sort of endocrine and neurophysiological changes and developmental processes is so important. The bottom line is we're evolving as much now as we did in the past, but probably with different ecological and processual modes. Well, I, okay, but I certainly wouldn't think that patterns of uh, reproductive success in so-called modern society have much to do with uh, in human nature, uh, if that's defined as kind of, you know, the biological hereditary basis of human psychology. I mean, uh, what is that? I mean, of course, I, I mean, our, our reproduction okay. right now has to do with our biology. Well, why, I, does, why, doesn't, uh, why doesn't your view lead to the idea that there are significant differences among the races? Different races... Uh, so, wait, wait, what's a race? Yeah. Define for me what a race is. Well, okay, but... but uh, no, no, not okay. I, I'm serious. Like, are you talking about, like, African, European, and Asian? I'm saying the average... Uh, uh, the average uh, person of African ancestry uh, has fewer generations in their past... Uh, that's, uh, th that if you look at, 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 uh, their, 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 their history, uh, go back, uh, you know, whatever, uh, 50 generations, which you seem to think is significant, I don't, mm -hmm. um, uh, you will find different statistical patterns. Uh, compared to my ancestors. Wait, 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 wait. So uh, what do in you mean by ancestors? No, wait, 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 wait. What yeah. are you talking about? So are you saying that Africa writ large, that is all populations in sub-Saharan Africa and all populations in, let's say, Western Europe constitute no. biological units? No, I, I'm, I, I'm just talking about statistical averages. That's all you can oh. ever talk about in the real world. So, but what, what, what's a race then? Um, no, I, I take Darwin's point that, uh, you know, the noun, a race, is, uh, is misleading. Yeah. Uh, uh, Darwin's point and your point. Um, yeah. at the same okay, time. Okay, so let's talk about ancestry. So. Well, look, all like I would, all I would say is I think if, I suspect that if you look around and look at the people who are harping on, uh, what they think are deep, uh, biological differences in the cognitive capacities of what they think of as different races, they are saying 
very significant evolution has taken place right. in the last few centuries, and they consider that an important part of their argument. Now, you're probably aware of that. Yeah, and and they're wrong. I mean, because first of well, all, what their are they categories. Wrong about? I thought you well, just agreed with that part. They're wrong because what's the category? So you're saying take some individual who has some African uh, descent, right? Mm-hmm. Some African ancestry. Well, from where? Where are you taking that individual from? Because Africa is huge. There's more genomic variation in sub-Saharan Africa than on the entire rest of the planet combined. So uh, if, if we're asking, like, what does African ancestry mean? It's meaningless. So you're talking about West African ancestry? You're talking about South African ancestry? You're talking about Central African ancestry? We know that there are huge diversity there. And even in Western Europe, you've got to be very careful. So are you talking about recent Western Europe uh, ancestry or different? My, my bottom line is here, what argument is being made? So what you just outlined is that people say, look, There's a difference in cognition between black and white, and that has emerged in this time. I would say you're not being scientific because those categories you just gave me, black and white, are not scientific categories. If you're going to talk about ancestry, you need to be specific. What are you talking about genomically, if that's what your point is, and how does that relate? So that's why, with our contemporary understanding of gene diversity and GWAS and all of this kind of stuff, you can't just make stuff up. You have to say, okay, here's specifically what I'm talking about. And so that's why they're wrong. Has evolution happened over the last 50 generations? Sure. What does that mean? I don't know, right? Have allele frequencies changed over time? Probably. Have they changed just because of selection? Maybe, maybe not. Have they changed because of other reasons? Possibly, right? But What's the population that we're talking about? African ancestry is not a population. That is not a biological unit to talk about in regards to evolutionary processes. Okay, at this point, I'll I'll leave it for you to argue with the people I was just describing (laughs) because they think you are affirming their premises and you think that that's not as not consequential in the way they think it is. That uh, the the um uh but but I was there was a point I was I was going to get back to about uh. Uh, sexual dimorphism. So, uh, and this speaks to the difference of, of whether there are, uh, the question of whether there are significant differences on average between male and female in sexual psychology, uh, that, hmm. uh, in some sense have a, a basis in biological heredity. Uh, the argument would be that, uh, okay, uh, uh, granted, um, there's not as, not a huge amount of sexual dimorphism, um, in, in humans, we're probably, uh, somewhere between the average gibbon, maybe, and, and other, other species, uh, if you'll allow me to do, make a statistical generalization about gibbons, even in light of what you just said about them. Um, but the argument from evolutionary psychology would be that, uh, as, as human evolution has, uh, has continued, it may well be that competition among males has been less and less uh, about physical fighting mm-hmm. and more and more about like outmaneuvering males. So you, you might not see, uh, so differences might be cognitive or something that that's, that's a, 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 so the, a yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's a total, that's a hypothesis, right? That right. can be assessed and we can right. modify that. A similar hypothesis that sort of could be working in the same area is that, look, many people, Sarah Hurdy and others, uh, Lee Gettler, um, and a number of scholars have shown that cooperative parenting, that male contribution to parenting has been critically important in the genus Homo throughout much of the Pleistocene, at least the last million, million and a half years. And so the entire infrastructure for what mating access and mating success 
success means in humans? Like how do, how do human males and females get together and reproduce? What are the selection processes? What's the social ecology? That might be actually selecting for a whole different kind of competition or negotiation or collaboration within and between sexes for getting stuff done. These are all hypotheses that can be looked at. So, uh, and I think they are being looked at and a lot of people are doing this work. So I, I think that's, that's an important sort of thing to lay out there and then to assess. Okay. And is it your view that there are probably no significant uh, differences between male and female sexual psychology on average um, that have a hereditary basis? Well, I mean, it depends. So here the complexity is, what do you mean by sexual psychology in male and female? I mean, we know that there's a huge spectrum of sexuality in humans. Like humans do all sorts of stuff sexually, and most of sexual activity in humans is not reproductive. So we've got it. So are you talking about desire and about sexual activities? Or are you just saying specifically, can we tie specific sexual activity related to reproduction to pattern differences between those who are reproductively sort of, you know, sperm producers and those who are egg producers? I'm talking, <laughs> I'm not sure. Right. I, so, but do you I'm talking about me? sperm so, producers and egg producers, I right. think. So, so, so let's think about this. So there's probably a whole suite of patterns of ranges, not specific targeted things, but of mm-hmm. sort of psychological processes and patterns about desire, about arousal, for example, um, the physiology of sex, mm-hmm. how do you get into those situations that we can identify and discuss. And I think that's really important. The trick here is when you look at the actual sexual arousal physiology and the physiology of sexual reproduction in the context of human sexual activity, you see that it's just not, it's not either or. It's not just male and female. There's this huge range of stuff because of the social and cultural complexity and the physiological complexity of humans. So are there evolved patterns in human psychology associated with sexuality? Yes. Are they simply sort of best looked at as a binary male-female? Probably not. But do the statistical generalization are there statistical which ones though i mean well so, i'll give so, you a couple sexuality i mean you could for say example, that the males the, the, uh well i mean of course the classic one is uh you know uh that uh males seem less selective about sexual partners uh per se they are more aroused by sheerly visual cues all of these are averages right. of course right. um right. Uh, and you seem to see this reflected in a number of ways. The different kinds of pornography that males right, on average right. are attracted to compared to females. That seems to be a cross-cultural Absolutely. thing. A lot of these things seem to be cross-cultural. In this case, there's a very plausible, uh, explanation in terms of natural selection having to do with the fact that females can only reproduce once every uh, you know, few years in, in a hunter-gatherer environment and once a year now, whereas males can in principle, as long as they can find enough women to cooperate, uh, reproduce many, many, many times a year, you would expect that to, uh, you know, it, it's plausible in light of that, that males are less selective. And interestingly, there are, it, it, a lot of these hypotheses are hard to test, but a, a kind of test of this is that in uh, so-called sex-reversed species, where, where the, uh, female can reproduce more often than the male. For example, the male may incubate eggs, as in the case uh-huh. of certain seahorses or whatever. Um, you do seem to see the pattern reversed or, uh, yeah. so that to me, uh, you know, it, to me, it's a pretty compelling argument all told. I, I, I'd, right. I'd be willing to listen to, to, 
counter arguments or, 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 or see counter evidence, but. We should probably, I mean, I'd be glad to come back on and walk through because we don't have yeah. enough time to do this, but this is a really interesting thing here. Um, and you're right. That's a hypothesis, right? It's actually been looked at pretty extensively. The problem here is you're isolating the, the way you just framed that hypothesis, which is a common framing of it. You're isolating reproduction solely around the mating event. And we know that in humans, the reproductive landscape, the whole sort of ecosystem of selection for successful reproduction includes much more than mating events, right? It's pre-mating, it's mating and post-mating, plus an intensive amount of investment by both males and females, not just in the reproductive act, but rather the parenting and the whole sort of context. So if we look at fitness costs and benefits, right, you actually have to take the species characteristic reproductive ecology into account. And so it's not just how many times can a guy get laid. Right. It is what is the pattern and process associated with successful reproduction in this species, right, in humans. Mm -hmm. And so we have to step back and ask, well, what what do we know about those dynamics? How do we understand them? How do we engage with them? And that produces slightly more complexity than this basal idea. And the last thing I'll say, and I would love to have this longer conversation because this is a really interesting topic. Um, the last thing is that you have to be careful when you ask males about sexual uh, partners and reproduction because they lie. Um, now, that's an interesting psychology in and of itself. But when you look at like when you control and there's a number of studies that have done this for sort of patterns of lying or when you look at what people say about ideal partners and actual partners, both males and females fall out very close to one another mm -hmm. and in, in heterosexual studies. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is really important. These are all sort of heterosexual in primarily what, what are called weird societies. Um, but uh, what's really interesting which, which, is none of that means white. What does what the acronym stand for again? White, white educated, industrial, rich, developed. Right. Which is I where think. all uh, a disproportionate number of the yeah, studies the global north. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what's really interesting then is you're like, wow, how do they pattern out the same? And then you have to step back and ask, well, most societies have about 50-50 males and females, and it actually takes two to tango. And so the whole idea that the actual reproductive patterns are closer to one-to-one, -one, not 100% one-to-one, um, closer one to one. And if we think about an evolutionary context, that's not that surprising. And so all I'm saying is that it's much more complicated than the sort of standard evolutionary psych perspective. But I would point out that the argument I just laid out is also an evolutionary psych perspective, right? That we're interested in the evol evolution of psychological patterns and processes. That's a great question. I just don't think it's simple. Yeah. Well, you're right. This is a, a conversation for another day, and I would I would enjoy that. I I, I know you got to go in a few minutes. I want to close with a question to, to kind of get back to, in a way, the beginning of this. And and the question is, how should we judge people from earlier eras? I mean, you're at Princeton, and this is just uh, at Princeton surfaced in a big way. Woodrow Wilson has actually been canceled at Princeton. I mean, th there used to be a uh, Woodrow Wilson Residential College. doesn't have his name anymore. There was the Woodrow Wilson International, uh, uh, whatever, public School of Public International Affairs. doesn't have his name anymore. Um, and, you know, you could argue, uh, I think he was born in the South before the Civil War. It's like, what do you expect, you know, kind of what do you expect uh, in terms of racial views yeah. of somebody like that it is the – is the, the, the question, and, and you could of course ask the comparable question about Darwin. So, um, yeah. It, 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 yeah. it's a tough question, but what is your view on, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess, you know, uh, 
Well, say what you want yeah. to say. Go ahead. So, no, I mean, it's really important. And I wish people would actually ask one another and talk about this because right now people are just yelling and freaking out. This is really important. Um, so uh, on the Woodrow Wilson thing, I just came to Princeton this last year, so I missed all of that uh, hubaloo, yeah. uh, hellabaloo or whatever the word is. Yeah. Um, but what's very interesting is we acknowledge who uh, Woodrow Wilson was uh, and, and there was a reason that he those buildings and school had his name, right? There was also a reason it was taken off because in the contemporary, and this is about the contemporary context, who do we want as our icons right now? Who do we want to say, this is the person we're glorifying? This is the person we want to follow in their trajectory, in their footsteps. Um, and the decision was that Woodrow Wilson is no longer that person, right? This is the same reason I have no problem with taking down sort of homages to Confederate generals. I, I'm not a big fan of glorifying those folks. Um, should we get rid of the understanding and the knowledge and the history? No. But should we get rid of the homage to them as heroes? Yes. So I, I don't have a problem with that. But let's talk about Darwin. So first of all, nothing I ever said had anything to do with removing a statue of Darwin or not reading Darwin. My argument is read more Darwin or actually read it. Most people who defend and scream, all the people who yelled at me, like on Twitter and especially in the nasty emails I received, I'm pretty sure none of them have read Darwin. Um, and that's... That's unfortunate because in these kind of societal conflicts, we're in a tough time in this country right now, in the world, but in this country. And people need to think critically and carefully. Don't just spend all your time screaming at each other, but actually do the work. Read, learn, think about this stuff, and then you'll see why this is so complicated and we can work together to try to figure it out. I, I just think immediately jumping to this sort of left, right, woke, cancel, whatever all this stuff, it's missing the point. There's some serious stuff going on, and we need to deal with it. And it's, as scholars, like you said, I'm a professor at Princeton. It is my job to provide information and to provide context and to try to help to people to think with this and to do, like I'm doing right now, show up in public venues and say, hey, this is complicated. Let's think about this stuff. Let's just not throw stuff at each other. I agree we should not throw stuff at each other. We, we end <laughs> on a note of concord. Uh so thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Uh, and, um, I would, I would like to have another conversation down the road if it turns out you have the time. Uh, where can, uh, uh assuming, uh, you're still interested in engaging on Twitter after this uh, experience, yeah. where can people find you? What's your Twitter handle? I am at Anthrofuentes. Please tweet me, throw stuff in my direction. I, I love conversations, but I do want to point out, and I actually thought we had this conversation. Twitter's a great place to sort of throw some stuff out and think with stuff, but it's not the place to have extended conversations. And that's why podcasts today in the world are so important because it gives us a chance to sort of sit down and talk about stuff. So thank you for, for having this podcast and thank you for doing this kind of work. My pleasure. Uh, thank you. And, uh, I, I hope we will, uh, we'll, we'll be speaking soon. Absolutely.